have ever gone to Ezekiel 37 or Ezekiel 47, which is going to be the lesson right after this, and gone, ah, okay, that's, that's what my purpose is. Uh, well, that's what we're going to try to do this afternoon. But I want you to imagine that for what we're doing this session and the next session, I, I don't know what it would have been like in the first century to gather with the Christians on Sunday, but I just want you to imagine that they would have gotten together for several hours. And uh, they wouldn't have had completed Bibles like what we have. So what they would have had, I assume, is somehow one of, one of the members of the congregation would have been able to find one of the scrolls of the Old Testament. And for, for that day or for that Sunday or for that month or couple months, they would have dug into whatever that scroll was. Now, imagine that uh, you're a new Christian and you're living in that time period and the scroll that you guys have to study for a couple weeks is Ezekiel. But here's what your life looks like. You become a Christian, and mom and dad don't like that you become a Christian. And it's made things harder at work because now that they know that you're a Christian, uh, people start making fun of you, and people are ostracizing you. And then, even like we see in Hebrews chapter 10, uh, your, your property, your house, actually gets seized and taken away. But By the way, in Hebrews 10, when that happens... Have you ever thought that the audience were, they were Jewish people? What did property mean for a Jew? This was family heritage, because it was passed down through uh, the tribes, the, the tribal system. And so to have that stripped away from you was stripping away all of your cultural heritage that, that meant everything to you growing up. Now, I want you to imagine that that's what you're going through, and then whoever in the church has the scroll, they get up in front of the congregation, and they say, all right, guys, what we have to study right now is Ezekiel. What we don't have is some inspirational speaker that's going to sound in all the ways that the world talks about motivational speak. We don't have that kind of thing. What we have is the scroll of Ezekiel. And maybe some people would wonder, well, does this book of Ezekiel have any application to my life because right now I'm discouraged, I'm spiritually depressed, I don't have any motivation to do what God says. But then they start studying the scroll and maybe they find that there's some things in there that they never anticipated. I've heard before that 70%, of the Bible is stories or visions or parables in other words, it's not just like arguments that like what we see in the, in, in the book of uh, Romans, for example. The majority of the Bible is made up of stories and visions and things to get you um, to imagine the truths of Scripture. And one of the most vivid visions that I can find in all of the Bible, and especially Ezekiel, is this thing that we're going to look at in Ezekiel 37, verses 1 through 14. Let's go ahead and read this text. Ezekiel 37, verses 1 through 14. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the Spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley. And behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, 
O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these dry bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live, and I will lay sinews upon you and cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you, and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a sound and behold, a rattling. And the bones came together, bone to its bone, And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, Prophesy to the breath, uh, uh, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will open your graves and raise you from my graves, O my people, and bring you into the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will put my spirit within you and you shall live And I will place you in your own land, and you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. Did you guys catch everything that that text was talking about? Uh, This section of Scripture breaks up into two parts. The first ten verses is the actual vision, the thing that Ezekiel sees. And by the way, throughout the book of Ezekiel, there are four major visions that he has. The first one is in chapter 1, when he sees the glory of God with the cherubim and everything. Uh, my mom thinks that that's actually talking about an alien that he saw. That's not what it is. Uh, chapter, and then the second vision is chapters 8, 9, and 10, where the glory of God leaves the temple. And it, we see the abominations that are being committed in the temple. The third vision is this one. The fourth one we're going to look at in the next lesson with this temple vision that he sees. But So the first ten verses here is the actual vision, the thing that he sees. Verses 11 through 14 are the explanation of what this vision is about. So you can tell from verses 11 through 14 that Ezekiel is preaching to people that are discouraged. In fact, in verse 11, these bones that were in this valley, they represent the household of Israel. And they're saying that our bones are dried up. We're discouraged. There's no hope anymore. And you notice why they feel that way. It's because in verse 14, they've been exiled from their homeland. It says that God is going to bring them back to their own land, which implies that they had been exiled from where they lived. All right, try to imagine being the Israelites in the time of Ezekiel. You've been stripped away from your homeland. And you know that God had promised to Abraham... That God was going to take Abraham and make him into a great nation and give him this land flowing with milk and honey. And then it was all taken away. And then you also remember the promises to David that God was always going to have a descendant in the lineage of David reigning on the throne, having this kingdom that was exercising justice and righteousness, using their power the right way. But now, you've been taken away from this land flowing with milk and honey, and there's nobody reigning on the throne in Judah anymore. What would your question be? What would your struggle be? You see these promises in the Scripture, but your life isn't matching up to that. Have you ever felt that way before? 
that it seems like God promises that He's going to do these things in your life. And it's not even like you've made up these promises and you've assumed that God was going to do it for you. You can actually see the promises in the Bible. But your life doesn't seem to match up. Or your heart. Or the burden of guilt is still there. Or whatever it might be. And you start to get discouraged. Do you notice that in verse 1, this vision takes place in a valley. A valley is a low place. The morale of the nation in this text is low. Uh, by the way, battles would be fought in valleys. Do you remember when David and Goliath fought each other? They, they were on either side of a mountain. There was a valley in between. Oftentimes, armies would, meet up, would face each other on the mountains and then meet in the valley to fight. And so it's as if the nation of Israel, of Judah, has just been slain in this valley and decimated. And what Ezekiel is doing in this prophecy is he's giving the nation that's so discouraged and spiritually depressed, he's giving them hope in this section. And you notice that all throughout this text, that there's the promise of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. Ten times in this text, you're going to see words, that it's the same word in Hebrew, but it's translated in, into English in different words. You see the word spirit at the beginning and the end of the text. You see the word wind and you see the word breath. In the Hebrew, it's all the same thing. Uh, in the Greek, the Greek word for the spirit is pneuma, like P-N-E-U-M-A. I don't know if you've ever worked with pneumatic pressurized tools. What is pneumatic tools? It's pressurized air that you use on different things. So here, the, the, the meaning of the word spirit means breath. You know that you're alive if you're breathing. And so what Ezekiel is saying is that God is going to spend, send the Spirit and it's going to take the, something that's dead and give it life. By the way, the chapter right before this in Ezekiel 36 gives the promise of the coming of the Spirit. Look what this says in Ezekiel 36, verses 26 and 27. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of, of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. We're going to look more about at this passage tomorrow. But notice what this promises. That there's this new covenant that's going to come where God is going to take people who had hearts like Pharaoh's hearts, the hard hearts. He's going to do this, this spiritual surgery where he was going to take those hard hearts and give them a heart of flesh. Oftentimes the word flesh in the Bible has negative connotations. In this context it's a good thing. Because a fleshly heart is receptive to the seeds of God's word, unlike a stony heart would be. Now, I would suggest, that, would you agree with me that there's a lot of confusion in our religious world about the Holy Spirit and what the Holy Spirit was going to do and how the Holy Spirit would work and, and how the Holy Spirit would communicate with people. And all of these different... Let me suggest that one of the biggest reasons there's confusion about the Spirit is because we haven't spent enough time, I haven't spent enough time going back to the Old Testament prophecies that talked about what the Holy Spirit was going to do. Uh, we, we look at Old Testament prophecies of Jesus, right? He's going to be born in, in, in Bethlehem. Uh, we see that in Micah chapter 5. We see his, how he was going to be humiliated and how he was going to suffer. That's Isaiah 53. How often have we gone back to look at prophecies about the Spirit? According to this prophecy, the Spirit is a life-giving being. And we're going to flesh this out as we go through this. That's, that's a funny pun. I didn't mean to say that because there's a lot of flesh going on here. Um, one other thing to say about this scene before we start to think about what this would have looked like 
there's a connection in this scene to Ezekiel's personal life. The first verse of or the first the first three verses, the first the third verse of Ezekiel says that Ezekiel was a priest. Now, uh, a couple months ago, last summer, I went to the Czech Republic, and uh, on a Saturday, we went to a concentration camp called Terezin. And they had a, a, a crematorium there where they would have burned uh, Jewish people. And, and the Jewish people were the ones who ran the concentration camp. And it was a Saturday that we looked at it. They wouldn't even open up the crematorium on a Saturday because of the Old Testament laws about touching a dead body. Those kind of laws were heightened for a Jew, uh, for, a, for a priest. A priest could not touch a dead body, even of his own family. Can you imagine being Ezekiel in this vision, being set amongst a bunch of dead bones? That's an eerie, scary situation to be in. So I want you to imagine what's happening here. Ezekiel's taken in the Spirit into this middle of the valley. There's mountains on either side. And imagine that you're trying to adjust to your new settings. And as you look around and you see this valley, you see a bunch of bones, you see a bunch of swords that are kind of glimmering and shimmering in the light. And as you start to look, he starts to walk around among the bones. And the text tells us that there were very many bones. Do you know how many bones are in a fully grown, like a full adult? It's 206. Let's just imagine that there were 30,000 people that were slain here. And you multiply that by... There's thousands upon thousands upon thousands of bones in this valley scattered all over the place. He sees hip bones and skulls and femurs and finger bones and toe bones and all of these things. And he notices as he's starting to look more closely at these bones that they're, they're not just dry, but they're very dry. If you were in this kind of climate in the Middle East, uh, the deserts get scorching hot. They would have been sun-bleached. Now, if you take bones and you bury somebody and the bones put, are put into a coffin, it takes about 50 years for those bones to get brittle and dry in a coffin. That's a, a pretty long time. I would imagine that that process would be sped up if they were in the middle of a valley, but it would still take some degree of time for that to eventually happen. But these bones, as they say, are bone dry. As he would have been walking around among them, if he would have accidentally stepped on one of these bones, you could probably hear the crunching under his feet. This is what he's looking at. Can you imagine how frightening and how scary this would have been? And in this ominous kind of moment, God breaks the silence and he has a great question that he asks Ezekiel in verse 3. He says, Son of man, can these bones live? Now, Ezekiel would have known the Old Testament scriptures that would have been written up to that point. Elijah and Elisha, did they ever raise anybody from the dead? Yeah. Uh, but those people still had their sinews and their muscles and their, and their flesh on them. These bones are, are completely dead. But you notice that when Ezekiel answers this question, he doesn't use human reasoning. Instead, he says to God, Oh Lord, you know. You know if these bones can come back to life. And with that, God gives Ezekiel the most interesting of instructions. And he tells him, I want you to start preaching to these dead bones that are in this valley. Uh, 
he's supposed to tell them, oh, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord, and then all of these things are, are said to happen to them. Now, we know in other parts of Ezekiel that Ezekiel had a hard time getting the people he preached to to listen to what he said. But Ezekiel had never had an audience that was more dead than this. Uh, can you imagine somebody, let's say that you were all by yourself in a room and there was just a bunch of dead rats or dead animals or dead, dead human bones, all right? And then you started speaking to them. What would people say that you were? A little crazy. And so, it, But Ezekiel still amazingly in verse 7, look at how verse 7 begins. So I prophesied. He started to obey one of the most illogical commands that I could imagine somebody getting. But as he started preaching to these bones and he starts speaking to these bones, this rattling starts happening and you can see the leg bones connecting to the hip bones and you start singing that song and then all of the bones start like sliding across the dusty ground and they're getting connected. And they're all getting into the proper place and as he looks at them and he keeps preaching, the sinews, that's like the red stringy tendon things, come on and the flesh comes on and the skin comes on. Everything makes it look like these people are coming back to life. You notice, by the way, it's a process. It's like one thing happens after another. It's not all just immediately at once. But all of this starts to happen, but still, they're not breathing. So it seems like his prophesying had done something pretty amazing, but these people are not alive yet. Uh, Ezekiel's preaching isn't over yet. God tells him to call for the winds of the heaven, like call for the powerful winds all over the earth to come into these bodies. Uh, by the way, does this remind you of anything else in the Bible? Remember when God created Adam, Genesis 2-7? Then the Lord formed the man of dust from the ground, by the way, valleys are dusty ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. In Genesis chapter 1, God takes this body that can't breathe, and then he breathes into it and it's alive. In this text, you've got these bodies that are not alive and then they breathe the Spirit into them and then they come and stand on their feet and they become, like this text says, an exceedingly great army. Can you imagine them waking up and adjusting to their new settings and they're dusting off their swords, they're moving their fingers, they're seeing if this is real, they, they become animated all over again. Can you imagine that you were one of the people that Ezekiel was preaching to? Your nation is downcast, you're spiritually depressed, and you imagine what this scene is saying. What would the takeaway be for the first century Christian if you have the scroll of Ezekiel to study? I'd suggest that, first of all, this says something about the nature of our captivity. For the original audience of Ezekiel, they had been stripped away from their homeland. The nation as a whole, was almost as if it were dead. But this text says that the nation's graves are going to be opened up and they're going to return back to their homeland. Which, by the way, in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, you see with Cyrus's decree, they're going back and they're rebuilding and doing all of these different kinds of things. But ultimately, this is talking about the spiritual return from captivity that all of us have experienced or need to experience. You know what it truly means to be exiled? Uh, my wife and I just moved from San Diego, California to Atlanta. We've been here for five months. And guess what? We don't really feel at home yet. But I'll tell you that when we were in San Diego, we didn't feel at home either. 
I grew up in Minnesota, and I didn't really feel at home there either. Do, do we realize that wherever we are in this world, we're never going to fully feel like we fit in. And we're never going to fully feel like we are where we belong. And so what the New Testament, what Jesus came to bring us, was this return from the real captivity that I think everybody, whether you're a Christian or a secular person, realizes. Um, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. Ephesians chapter 2 in particular has a lot of parallels to Ephesians 37, or, uh, Ezekiel 37. But Ephesians 2, 1 says, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. You know how we need to think about ourselves? That before we were ever Christians, we were like those bones in the valley of death. Do you suppose that any of those bones could have like kind of turned their heads and looked at another bone and gone, you know what, I'm pretty thirsty, can you give me some water? They didn't even have lips to talk, that wouldn't have happened. Let me ask you a question about uh, how you think about yourself before you were a Christian. When you look back to the time before you were converted, before you were baptized into Christ, how did you view yourself? And, and is it hard for you to be able to acknowledge that I wasn't fully right with God in those times? Are we able to acknowledge that who I was was this dead pile of bones in this valley and that apart from the grace of God, I had no hope? In fact, look at Ephesians 2 verse 12, which is almost a quote of one of the verses in Ezekiel 37, it says, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Do you remember what that was like? This text says that there was a time where you had no hope. Well, let's pause that for a second. I've known a lot of people who weren't Christians who had hope. Well, what, what, what is this saying? That the things that you hoped in were not fulfilling. The things that you hoped in were empty. And then this text says that you used to be that way, but now you've brought, been brought near to God. Do you see the first, ver first word here? Remember. Do you remember what it was like before you were ever a Christian? When you were spiritually dead and there was no hope for you until Jesus came into your life and found you. You know, one of the things that... Uh, I remember being especially intimidated by when I first became a Christian, was I'd be in Bible class, and some member of the church that wasn't even a preacher could just quote a bunch of verses of the Bible. And they knew, they knew so much stuff. And immediately I thought, well, my, I need to learn how to remember stuff. And I need to have a good memory of the Scripture. All right, let me... I think it's good to memorize Scripture. I think it's good to remember the, the references and all that. But when the Bible talks about having a good memory, do you know what the emphasis of the Scripture is? It's not whether or not you can memorize the Twelve Apostles. If you want to go do that, do that. That's great. I'm not knocking that. But when the Bible talks about having a good memory, one of the things that it emphasizes the most is that you remember where you came from. Anybody can remember that, even if you can't remember the book, chapter, and verse references. So let me ask you this question. Do you have a good memory? We'll talk more about that tomorrow afternoon. But that, I think this text, first of all, tells us something about our captivity that we either, either are still experiencing because we're not right with God or that we used to have. Notice, secondly, what this passage tells us, though. It tells us something about our return from exile. Uh, it, if the true exile is being separated from God, 
This means that the true return from exile is being reconnected to God. And so in this text, we see that the people of Israel here are given new life and hope. We just talked about that a little bit. Now we have something that we can hope in that never lets us down. Notice also that throughout this text in Ezekiel, that these people are going to know that I am the Lord. It says that three times just in this text. By the way, if you were to look all throughout the book of Ezekiel, that phrase, then they will know that I am the Lord. I don't remember how many times it's used, but I think it's around 70 or 130, somewhere in that range I think it is. It's all over the place. One of the ways that you know that you've really returned from your exile is that you know that the Lord is God. And that He's become the passion of your life more than anything else because of what He's done for you. Now, we could say more about that, but what I want to talk about more uh, than anything in this, this passage here is that these people were made into a great army. When, when these soldiers, when these people are resurrected, it's not like they're resurrected and they become this, the greatest country club that ever existed. They didn't just become the, these group of people that just really love each other and like to pat each other on the back, which is fine if we love each other, we're commanded to do that, that's the greatest command, everything like that. But what they become is they become an army. Uh, all right. Is this the the church at uh, Garden City? This this church right here. Is is this is this an army? Is this how we picture ourselves? Well, what does it mean that we are an army? Let me suggest a couple things. The first thing is that good soldiers are careful to obey what their master has commanded. By the way, we saw that in Ezekiel 36. Remember when God removes the heart of stone, He gives them a heart of flesh and then they will be careful to do everything that the Lord has commanded. Have you ever had anybody ask you uh, what church you go to? And you say, oh, I go to such and such church. And then they say, oh, okay, all right. Is your church spirit-filled? And you go, well, I'm not sure what you mean by that. What do you mean by, is, is the church I go to spirit-filled? Because uh, what some people might mean by that is, do people roll on the floor? Are they screaming out all kinds of things? When the Bible talks about being filled with the Spirit, at least from the perspective of Ezekiel, you want to know if you have the Spirit. It's as if, you, it's as if you're carefully doing what the Master has commanded you. you. You can't justify disobedience and say that the Spirit told me to do that. That's one thing to say about the work of a soldier. Here's another thing to say about it. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 15, it talks about the armor of God. I think one of the things about the armor of God that sometimes gets missed a little bit or doesn't get as much airtime is Ephesians 6, verse 15. It says, As shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. All right. Uh, you got Part of the armor is, is the shoes. All right. What do you do with your shoes? Well, you wear them, and then your shoes go wherever you go. And wherever you go, you're also spreading what? The gospel. Well, what is the gospel? That Jesus is the king that can bring liberation. You want to know what righteous armies do? There's been lots of unrighteous wars that have been fought throughout history. Do you want to know what a righteous army does? It brings liberation to people who are in captivity. It stops oppression. When my grandpa was in World War II, he was one of the guys who literally broke down the gate at Dachau, one of the concentration camps in Germany. He was literally one of the ones that broke down the gate. And when he broke down the gates, what did he see 
in, in all the different concentration camp rooms, people that were basically skull uh, bones, skin and bones as they say. I don't know how many of those people were brought back to life, but I think that shows to illustrate what our mission is. When we think about, the, when you think about the city of Savannah, you might drive down the streets and go, people have nice cars, people have really cool houses and all of You know what the truth is if they don't have Christ? They're dry bones. From an earthly perspective, they might have a lot of things that seem to be going for them. But from a spiritual perspective, they don't have anything. And I don't know if you ever look at the immorality of the city that you live in. And if somebody was to ask you, oh, hey, do you think that those bones can live? What would your knee-jerk response be? Oh, I don't think so. I don't think those people could ever be brought back to life. Look at the response of Ezekiel. Hey, Ezekiel, can these bones come back to life? If I'm Ezekiel, I'm saying no. Shame on me. Let us be more like Ezekiel and say, Lord, you know. My responsibility is this to say the words that you've given me to say. And you're going to do with those words whatever you want to do. Notice, finally, by the, just to tie up this point here. We know that we've really returned from our exile when we know that we have our new life and hope in Christ, when we know who the Lord is, when we're, we've been made into soldiers who do these things, when we know that that's our mission. But let's ask a third thing about this. Why is it possible that God can take people like me and you that were dead in the valley and give us life all over again? Three times in this text, you see the term son of man. Son of man, son of man, son of man. Later in the Bible, is there another person that's titled Son of Man that came and gave life-giving words? John 6, 63, after Jesus multiplies bread for a group of people and he, he's wanting them to see the deeper meaning of the miracle that they're spiritually malnourished. Uh, he says in John 6, 63, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. The words that Ezekiel spoke were spirit and life to those dry bones. The words that Jesus speaks are life and spirit to us. But in John 20, when, before the Gospel ends, notice this curious thing that happens in John 20, verses 21-23. It says, Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, even so am I sending you. And when He said this, He breathed on them and said, Receive the Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Have you ever looked at this scene and thought, what in the world is he doing? Imagine Jesus with his apostles, and he, sa he stands there, and he goes, <sighs> And then he, he says that, I, peace be with you, receive the Spirit. What's Jesus doing? I think he's enacting, he's reenacting Ezekiel 37. This guy who breathes the Spirit onto these dead people so that they can come back to life. And Jesus is saying that there's going to come this time in Acts chapter 2 when the Spirit gets poured out on you guys and you're going to be given these words that are going to give life to everybody. But let me just make this one application of this. If, if you want to have life, it, it, let me say this first. When I first became a Christian, one of the biggest frustrations I had was that I hadn't progressed as quickly as I wanted to. We live in a microwave society that wants everything now. 
where Amazon can give you some packages sometimes the same day. When I became a Christian, I, th- why, I, I thought after a couple months, how come I'm not more patient? How come my anger problems are still there? How, how come jealousy and envy still exist in my heart? How come I'm not changed right now? In this text, it was a process. The sinews, and then the muscles, and then the flesh, and then they were brought back to life. It's a process to change. It takes time. But do you want to know how that happens in your life? You have to keep going back and listening to the words that give life over and over and over and over and over. How many of you have a cell phone? How, what, what do you do with your cell phone before you go to bed? You plug it in because you just know that it needs to have power the next day. What do we do if we unplug from God and from reading our Bible? We start to die more and more and more and more until we get back into the valley of death. Ultimately, we serve a master who went into the valley of death for us. He went and he sacrificed himself and he died and his, the grave was opened for him so that a path back to God was made, uh, was made open for us. When you think about everything that Jesus has done for us and then you tie all of these things to Acts chapter 2, do you remember when Peter said in Acts chapter 2, after these people realized that they were in the valley of death, he tells them to repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive what? The gift of the Holy Spirit. Who is Peter preaching to that day? Jewish people who knew the Old Testament. Do you think when they heard, oh, we'll get the Spirit, that they suddenly started thinking that God was going to speak audibly to them and that God was going to, because the Spirit's going to move and all these different... No, what would the Jews have been thinking about the Spirit? The Jews would have been thinking that the Spirit gives life to that which is dead. That's the work of the Spirit. That's not the only work of the Spirit, but that's the primary work of the Spirit that we see in Ezekiel, in Genesis, we see it in uh, Acts chapter 2. So the question for you right now is this. Are you still in the valley of death? Have you been brought out of it? Have you disconnected from the words that give life, just like the words that Ezekiel preached that gave life? Do you see why studying the Bible and being into it is so important? changes us from one degree of glory to another. Uh, we're about to have a little bit of a break, and then in just a moment we're going to look at another vision in Ezekiel 37. So thank you for your good attention.